All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right, friends, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson, and actually back on the podcast for the second time today is Andrew Davis. Andrew, how are we doing? Hey, doing good, Josh. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back. I'm glad uh, our first conversation didn't scare you off, you know. I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it didn't scare uh, scare you off, so. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was it was fun. And for listeners who are curious, we in that conversation, we talked about your book, uh, Mind, Value and Cosmos, um, yeah. which was a lot of fun. You were very generous uh, with me and my, you know, uh, trying to engage with your work as a, <laughs> uh, I don't know, armchair philosopher at best. Um, but I enjoyed it. I thought you did great. No, I really it was a fun it conversation. It yeah, so that, that book is complicated uh, at times. So, but no, you did great. Yeah, it's it's fun. I I really I enjoyed it, and it was cool too to read. You know what we're going to talk about today: um, metaphysics of an exo life or of exo life. Sorry, I added words to your title um, because it, it was I don't know. It was cool to kind of see some of the ideas present in mind value and cosmos kind of brought it, I, I don't know basically i was proud of myself that i could trace some of your work in this one and see how yeah. it relates and i was like cool okay neat <laughs> so it's good yeah i uh i had a good time reading it um yeah so i'm i'm excited to to dive in but i thought maybe what would be just helpful you know kind of podcasting one-on-one stuff is for listeners who didn't hear that first conversation and who didn't hit pause right now and go back and listen. Um, <laughs> if you could just introduce yourself a little bit, you know, fill in our listeners who you are and like what kind of things you find yourself doing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm Andrew Davis. Uh, I'm a philosopher and theologian working in the process tradition. So I know, generally speaking, your audience is going to be familiar with some discourse and process and open relational theology. So I have the privilege of 
working in that realm uh, professionally. So I lead research and program directing at the Center for Process Studies, which uh, if you're not familiar with it, was for 50 years a faculty research center of uh, Claremont School of Theology. It was founded in 1973 by John Cobb and David Griffin uh, for the purpose of exploring and applying the insights of process thought. Um, that includes Whitehead's philosophy, but uh, certainly philosophies beyond Whitehead, Bergson, say, or uh, Teilhard de Chardin, others. Um, so just recently, the Center for Process Studies has become an independent nonprofit, uh, but we still are inheriting this legacy of 50 years. We're still developing research, developing conferences, book series, course materials, et cetera, um, across the spectrum when it comes to thinking about some of the impact that process thinking can, can make with respect to some of today's big questions. The questions in science, spirituality, religion, theology, and all of them blended into a blender as well. Um, so I get to do that. I get to write, speak, and network. And it's really a privilege, you know? And so I know what we're discussing today is going to be sort of lofty and adventurous, but that's been a part of the Center for Process Studies. And it's certainly a part of, of me. And I know that adventurous aspect's part of you too. So I think it's probably welcomed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I was pretty excited to see uh, this book come out just because I don't know. I think the adventure, you named it well. It's it's the adventure, the um I don't I don't mean this word like pejoratively, but like the imaginative kind of uh you know, thinking along, okay, exolife, if this is a thing, which it very well could be, what does that mean? How does that inform our uh, you know, philosophy or our theology or what it means to be in my context, someone who on his best days, calls himself a Christian kind of thing. Right. Yeah. And so I, I like that, the kind of adventurous uh, spirit of it. Yeah, I think you named it well. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say if you're ever speaking to process people, Whiteheadians, they would never use the language of imaginative as a pejorative, right? This is a good mode of expression. And Whitehead uses it too, right? So this whole imaginative endeavor is what philosophy has been up to for since the very beginning. And this he uses the language of imaginative generalization, right? In some sense, we have to take elements of our experience and imaginatively apply them beyond our experience to the exterior world. Uh, never forgetting that they extend from our experience, but but that that extent of you know extending imagination from your experience is fundamental. And Whitehead, you probably heard it in some of your reading, but he uses the analogy of a, an airplane taking off as the method of philosophy. You know, he says the airplane sta starts on the ground of uh empirical data it lifts into the skies of imaginative generalization and then lands again to uh to the streets to the to the runway uh to try to stay close to data again you know so it's this taking off uh tasting the air if you want and returning again and philosophers are doing that with our experience and beyond our experience so it's not a pejorative but it's definitely adventurous all the time yeah nice and i i i don't know i love the for me, and I've I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast, and perhaps even I've said it to you, but the kind of taking experience seriously is one of the things that really kind of drew me to process thinking, because the kind of tradition yeah. that I grew up in was like your experience doesn't matter, blah blah blah, and so a lot of the kind of um, cognitive tensions that I had, you know, with my you know theology or something like that, was that my internal experience and external realities were kind of butting heads and yeah. 
the way I was told the world worked didn't seem to work. <laughs> and sure. So I got into no, I... like the mystics and then found my way to process, you know, starting with the works of like Tom Ward and then kind of expanding mm -hmm. from there. Um, and I've just found it to be so helpful and fun and imaginative and experiential. Yeah. And no, I think you put it nicely when you say, and you point to that conflict that people feel sometimes, right? And I felt that too, uh, growing up, you know, it's like there's a, at least in the theological domain, there's a set of objective, if you want, beliefs, right? The creeds, uh, the exterior scaffolding um, that you're supposed to intellectually assent to. But it becomes very hard when your own experience doesn't seem to jive, say, uh, with with those things. And, and it presents like this challenge, really. Do you ignore one and follow the other? Can you somehow creatively navigate through both? Um, and generally, those people who ignore their experience um, end up doing a disservice to themselves and their their faith walk, if you want to put it that way, right? So and the mystics, I think, were often quite uh, rebellious, right? So religion and rebellion have this interesting dimension. And if you do follow your experience, sometimes it leads you uh, contrary to what settled beliefs are. I mean, we even see this in the ministry of Jesus, um, you know, who's questioning the longstanding purity rights and rules and, and, and pushing towards something more experiential and present in the moment. Um, so I, I walked that path too. And it's not just in theology, though, that we have to trust experience in some way, right? Even in the philosophical domain, a lot of modern philosophy, at least as process uh, philosophers will tell you, ignored experience, right? They wanted to bifurcate the human element or pretend that we can really face the world objectively without considering the elements of our experience and that's just not true because we're 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 inescapably part of the world and if that's the case we have to start with our experience in fact we're never outside of it and uh, and that's relevant for this for this topic too right when we begin to think about if there is life beyond earth or what, where do we start and well i'm going to make the claim that we have to start with experience i, I follow whitehead in that and then we do something creative and imaginative with that experience. Nice. Yes. I love it. All right. So the your book is called Metaphysics of Exolife Toward a Constructive Whiteheadian Cosmotheology. And so for listeners who have perhaps heard me like throw the word metaphysics around before, and honestly, I haven't ever done a good job of explaining what that means or what that is. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people might kind of get this understanding or perception that like, oh, well, metaphysics is basically just like cosmological fan fiction. It's just like silly kind of thing, blah, blah, blah. I know yeah. within the realms of philosophy, there was a large period of time where it was kind of dismissed, right? Um, if I understand correctly. But mm. so my question then would be, Okay, so metaphysics is literally in the title of your book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For our listeners, what is metaphysics? And like, why is this something that an average person like Josh Patterson should care about or take seriously? Yeah, yeah, great question. So I think it's important to make the distinction that usually every independent bookstore in the far flung corner of the shadows of the store has a, a section on metaphysics. You know, and, and typically that's not as interesting as that section is. That's not what philosophers mean when they talk about metaphysics. Um, so I just think it's nice. It's important to put it may be, you know, 
interesting to go into. But but when philosophers use the language of metaphysics, it, and Aristotle really coined that term, he had the physics. He, this is a, a written piece, right? The physics, and then he had the metaphysics beyond beyond the physics is all, is all that means, right? Or the presuppositions, or be, it, it could also mean below the physics in some way. But all that philosophers mean when they use the language of metaphysics is that we are pursuing uh, questions about the nature of reality, its nature, its constituents, its function. What are those elements that are ineradicable in the nature of things that we have to come to terms with? Um, so a sort of offshoot of metaphysics is this language of ontology of what exists or what is fundamental, what populates the universe? Is it dead brute matter? Is it values, possibilities, relations? So metaphysics in principle at a philosophical level pursues those elements of reality that are that are that can never not be, right? They're, they're the things that have to be reckoned with in a deep sense. So when I use the language of metaphysics of exolife, I'm I'm seeking those elements of reality that are gonna that are gonna influence how we think about not simply the reality of our life uh, in this universe, since this universe gave rise to us but elements that would also go into our thinking about any and other mode of extraterrestrial life uh, beyond simply this planet. So if, if metaphysics is coherent, uh, which I believe it is, I'm not saying why it has the perfectly right metaphysics, but that in principle, there's a metaphysical domain to the universe that applies universally. But there's some element of, of connection between us and, and them, as it were, by virtue of the fact that we exist and experience in this in this universe. Um, so th does that help? I mean, so it's not that that it's it's not the the woo woo stuff, even though that can be interesting. It's it's the it's the real questions about the nature of this reality we inhabit and how best to understand it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's deeply helpful, especially I think something that you pointed out um, that is you know particularly helpful to this kind of conversation around like okay, is there some kind of extraterrestrial life? is the idea of like the universality um, of a metaphysics. So mm -hmm. if, you know, we're doing metaphysics and it is coherent, then this should apply not just to, you know, our human existence here on this little planet called Earth, but rather these metaphysical, you know, kind of ideas, you know, presumptions, whatever, should then apply universally. Yeah. And so what's true here should also be true you know, I don't know, Planet X, where the like <laughs> purple guys with green hair hang out kind of thing. <laughs> uh, and we're discovering more and yeah. more Planet Xs. Right. But no, I, I think you I think you put it put it rightly, at least in principle. Yeah, that's what metaphysics seeks, you know. But there's an interesting the reason it's important, I think, is because historically, you know, we've sort of suffered as a people, as a civilization, as a planet, a series of cosmological decenterings, right? You think of revelations coming from different figures and different telescopes and different scientific achievements from Copernicus to Shapley to Hubble to now the James Webb Space Telescope, which has been releasing so many incredibly beautiful photos. And the quick response to this by people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and other sort of popular scientists are, look, look again how minute and peripheral we are on this planet. And then they draw essentially a connection of meaninglessness based on size and position, you know, which is really a big jump in itself. So I'm willing to fully say that we are not physically or cosmologically central, right? We know that, that we are not a geocentric universe, right? We're, we're, we're flung to the edges of a, of a, of a 
what do you say, a galaxy that, that by all appearances seems pretty common. But despite our cosmological decentering, this metaphysical issue offers us a recentering, right? And at least I think what, what Whitehead offers us is that we begin with our experience as we, you and I began, and we creatively work downward in reality to see what it is that must be in some sense fundamental. What it is that, that must be the case to allow us to be here? You know, so there's a sense of belonging in that, right? Because we're just as much, uh, much a part of everything else as any other species or planet, et cetera. The importance is not that we're any central in any one physical sense, but that we have a metaphysical place here. And if that weren't the case, I don't think we'd be here. And yet we are, you know, so I think that there's an element of belonging, right? Where where we want we the meaning crisis, as people talk about it these days, but where we need in some sense to feel at home in the universe, we need a way of expressing that. And I think metaphysics can be a way of doing that uh, in in a world where. We hear a lot about us being cosmologically decentered. We need to be careful. I'm not saying, you know, it's not, I don't want to make an anthropocentric claim, but but we belong in the universe because we are here. We have to work within our experience to to think creatively about realms beyond us. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, unless I'm misunderstanding you, I think one way that I've heard you kind of summarize this idea uh, could be that, like, as humans, we're not an exception to the universe, but an exemplification of it. And yeah. so when, when we kind of, you know, study and learn things um, about ourselves, in a way, we're also learning about things that are true about the universe as a whole. And that's that kind of, like, coherence piece that we kind of hit on earlier. And so I think, Absolutely. like, what you're describing is kind of like that, right? Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah, we're not an exception. We are an exemplification or expression. And that has to be the case as long as we're part of the world. And this is a claim that is often made across the scientific spectrum, right? That we are part of the world. But at the same time, there's so much, so many movements that ignore dimensions of our experience as if they weren't. You know, so there's an important need to recenter ourselves, not in a naive sense that, that we're the most important thing, but as a starting point for thinking about what this universe is ultimately up to. It's produced, produced us. And why should there be limitations on possibility for it not to produce something similar or vastly different, but related in some way beyond it? You know, and so the theological issue becomes interesting here too, because it, it gets to what is it that God is ultimately up to in this kind of universe? Um, you know, but maybe we'll, maybe we'll get there. Yeah, that's definitely something that I, uh, wanted to, to to hit on eventually in our conversation was this like i mean i guess essentially what it is is the a, a d uh i don't know so anthropocentric uh, doing the opposite of that making it not anthropocentric <laughs> a de-anthropocentrizing so, of let, uh, me, let me yeah let me let me try this one on you because this is a term okay. i've been using recently it's not that it's not that the universe is anthropocentric say it's mm -hmm. more that human beings are anthropocosmic right mm -hmm. so I, i'm okay I'm nice with yeah, this yeah, reversal yeah. right that and if you really look at a lot of a lot of philosophers they make the claim that human beings are a cosmic phenomenon uh and we are we, we really are we are we are anthropocosmic and it's not that the universe is anthropocentric so i think those that's sort of an inversion in itself in the, the quest of philosophy <laughs> uh 
multi-layered as it is, is to try to rightly think the implications of the fact that we're anthropocosmic, that we're part of this universe, we're part of this cosmos. If we really sit with that, that means that our experience, who and what we are, are a clue uh, to understanding that which is beyond us as well. Um, you know, so so maybe that switch of language is sort of creative and can help a little bit uh, your anthropocosmic, Josh. I like it. I'm, that's my next tattoo, anthropocosmic. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll give it to the yeah. uh, tattoo artist and get like a nice, uh, have him, you know, come up with a creative image to go with that. <laughs> Perfect. Sounds what? good. Show it to me. <laughs> Sounds all right. <laughs> uh, so with so we you know we talked some about metaphysics, um, but then also in your title you have like you know cosmotheology, um, which is yeah. kind of drawing on this idea of cosmology, uh, and in your book you you actually you spend time make like differentiating between metaphysics and cosmology. So like kind of what what is the difference and why is that why did you feel that was like an important distinction to make in this kind of conversation? Yeah, sure. So I think before I answer that, let me I'll back up a little bit and just say that the in the main, this book is a philosophical critique of Stephen J. Dick, who who is was NASA's former chief historian. Uh, he was also held the Bloomberg chair in astrobiology. At the Library of Congress, um, and 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 just the language of cosmic theology actually comes from Steve's work. So he, for many years, has been writing on what he calls a naturalistic cosmic theology, and, and the way he defines that is simply, cosmic theology is a is a theology that takes into account what we know about the universe based on science. Right, that might be all all the sciences, but certainly for him, it's mainly uh, cosmology. Right, so cosmo theology. Right, you can see those coming together in some sense. So, and the reason he's developed that term um, is because he he's anxious to answer this question or at least wonder about how it is that theology and religion might need to change in light of a discovery of a vastly populated universe, what he's called a, a biological universe, right? One, one where life is common as opposed to uncommon. Um, so his attempt at, at putting forth his naturalistic cosmo theology uh, is to try to answer that question. The problem is, what I've argued is it operates only at the level of, of cosmology. Um, so cosmology, we might say, is the endeavor to frame uh, uh, a template of ideas that are applicable to this stage of the universe, uh, to our particular cosmic setting. Um, but they're not ideas that would necessarily enter into any possible cosmic setting. Right, so metaphysics in principle, I would say, is deeper than cosmology because it's seeking those ideas that are uh, that would necessarily find cosmological expression, irregardless of of what that setting might be. So there's a contingent element to cosmology. For example, the laws of nature didn't have to be the way they are, arguably. Or Whitehead even says, <clears throat> why are there uh, three dimensions uh, and not fourteen? Right, there's a there's a contingency. There's something that didn't have to be that way. That is a part of cosmology. Whereas in metaphysics, we're seeking those things that that necessarily are the way they are. Right? So I mean, my critique of Steve's cosmic theology has to deal with pushing towards a more metaphysical dimension that he doesn't allow. So he wants to say we've been cosmologically decentered. Theology has to take that into account. And I want to say yes, but we can also be metaphysically recentered if we push down further, right? He wants to say we're morally, ethically, uh, in term biologically, not central. 
But I want to say, yes, but there's antecedent metaphysical dimensions of these realms that that recenter us in an important way. You know, so I'm sort of playing with with both of these these layers, um, and, and with respect to Steve's work too. So, and he and I remain in continual dialogue about this too. So, I'm looking forward to his critiques. <laughs> yeah, no, th that's cool. I, I like that, and I, you know, as I read, I I kind of gather that as you do this. I think there's six different um, chapters or like six different. Um, points that dick makes and you yeah, kind principles, of yeah. principles yeah that's a better word for it principles um that dick makes and you kind of use uh your own understanding of you know whitehead and metaphysics and stuff to kind of um i guess flip them but also i like the word you use deep in them that like if we go yeah. deeper there's something else here and so it's not right. like okay dick you know it's like you know, we're going to ignore all of this, but rather like, well, actually, let me introduce you to like another thing that I actually think makes this better. Um, yeah. Kind of, and, at and least that's, that's the vibe I got. That's kind of the vibe I got from your, from reading. No, no, I think you're right on. And that, what you just said is what I tried to capture using the language of constructive in the title, right? Because mm -hmm. I'm not purely saying, hey, Steve, um, you're a dick. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Joke had to <laughs> hey, be made. Steve, you know, I'm going to completely <laughs> deconstruct all of your thinking and tell you where you're wrong. I'm not about that because I, I do agree with a lot of the insights he's putting forward, but I think they can be deepened. So that's where that constructive language um, comes in. You know, and it, and it might be important just to say, too, that Steve's not an island. I'm certainly not an island. That this conversation about how do we think about the plurality of possible worlds, a universe populated with extraterrestrial life goes all the way back to antiquity. You know, the ancient Greek atomists believed in a plurality of worlds. They speculated on philosophical and religious grounds about whether or not there might be life out there. And all throughout the philosophical tradition, all throughout Christian, the theological tradition, this has been a live discussion uh, that, that's that been going on. So, and, and nowadays it's receiving sort of a renewed energy um, for a lot of different reasons. You know, I think one of the reasons might be scientific, right? So we, we know much more now about the universe. Um, it's amazing to think that even back to 1993 was the first time we discovered a an exoplanet, an extrasolar planet, uh, a planet that's outside of all, our solar system. And I think today we have tallied 5,000 plus more of those, you know, many of which relate uh, to Earth in certain habitable ways, right? They seem akin uh, to us. But science has revealed, too, that every star likely has planets orbiting it. And, uh, you know, we know cosmological evolution we were just talking about john hot's work but this cosmic story of evolution is now this grand meta narrative and it 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 only makes sense to to keep this question alive and the ufo phenomenon is quite interesting people are talking about that still so that's another reason why the conversation is coming back but philosophers and theologians are responding uh now and there's a lot of literature that's coming out so i wanted to throw my hat in the ring from a process perspective uh with the conviction that process thinkers can add a lot to this conversation. So just as a last point, the narrow focus of the book is a uh, constructive engagement with Steve Dick's work. The more broader engagement is in the appendix of the book. So there's appendix A and B, which is a historical testimony to the fact that process thinkers, process theologians, philosophers have in no way been silent on this issue. In fact, they've said quite a bit. And so appendix A um, sort of gives a sketch of historical uh sketch of that and then b is a republication actually of the first um sustained article on the topic from a process thinker lewis ford it's a wonderful article um written in 1968 presumably just before the moon landing in 1969 
So it's a it's a neglected history that I'm trying to bring out in addition to just engaging Dick's work. So it's been fun. Yeah, it. I don't know. I so like I get jealous of the kind of like fun. I don't know. Like I I dream of a day when I can kind of do the work of like engaging deeply with different theological voices, writing a book, and then like you know doing the kind of research and, and like bringing things together like that's that sounds so fun to me <laughs> and so it seems like it was a future, fun man. project for you yeah it seems like <laughs> it was a fun project for you um Very but much. the yeah and the so you hit you, you know we talked about it a little bit earlier um and you just kind of uh you know brought it up again as you were speaking but one of the things that i remember being very um scary at first was this kind of the you know the anthropocentric aspect like i grew up in a tradition where it was very anthropocentric right like animals are kind of cool but like people have domain over them and everything else right and like jesus came to save us humans this kind of thing and so when i first started engaging you know someone like hawk or um, you know, thinking a little bit more seriously about like, okay, our universe is still growing and expanding. There's all yeah. these planets. There most likely has to be life out there somewhere. Like that was very, that was like deeply um, like unnerving for me. Sure. And so the one thing that I appreciate about um, your work and other people's, you know, work similar to this is the kind of um, taking that seriously but then providing like a, a a more beautiful way forward where Thanks. one in which you can like still, you can acknowledge that, but it doesn't have to result in like you were talking about the kind of, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson's where everything is now like, you know, we're so little and puny, everything is meaningless. And so right. the kind which of, which is not a scientific statement. by the way. Yeah. Right. It's, it's not at all. It is. <laughs> <laughs> It is. So no. that that aspect's been helpful uh, for me personally. Um, yeah, which is, I've enjoyed. Well, that. I mean, uh, I mean, it's helpful for me personally as well. Um, for whatever reason, I just have a part of me, a strong sense of the value of existence, the value of being. I know not everybody has that, but um, part of that led me to being a philosopher, right, to asking these sort of questions and to trying to knock on those doors of nihilism right which seems so opaque but then opening them and seeing oh really there's just you know sort of a hollow hollow shell back here I'm not saying there's not spaces for being for feeling cosmologically decentered absolutely but i do think there's deeper ways of seeing our connection to this universe um, and to see ourselves as an expression of an ongoing narrative that is unfolding right this is back to hot's point and i just think that's very important part of it comes back to the nature of your disenchantment too, or the way you're speaking of it, is it theological, right? It may be that your understanding of, of God is simply not big enough. And if anything has caused us to expand our understanding of God, it is the developments of modern cosmology. Uh, there is no good reason why God should create only one world, right? And again, that's an ancient discussion, right? So, <laughs> you know, Aristotle had a certain philosophical rendering for why there has to be one world, right? Um, but somebody like Nicholas of Cusa, the great mystic, medieval mystic, rejects that completely, right? There is an infinite plurality of worlds, and he justifies it on theological grounds. 
right? And there's a certain coherence to that in some respect because an infinite God of benevolence would do nothing less than than create infinitely, right? This is sort of sort of the logic at play, or that goodness itself it belongs to the nature of goodness, or even love, right? To use Christian language, to give its, of itself endlessly. And like when we look around the universe, we see the plenitude, the plurality, even on our planet alone, of life, of value, uh, of intrigue. It's like this has to, in some way, reflect back on our understanding of God. Right? God is up to far more than a single planetary uh, species. And why why shouldn't that be the case? Uh, we have a lot of evidence that it is. You know, so it's I understand. You know, people feeling challenged when they're when their picture of God is expanding, but but also those are the spaces where we really actually begin to grow spiritually, right? The journey gets to deepen, and I get excited about that, frankly. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I I mean, I still remember kind of having coming to this conclusion. It was like, well, wait a minute. If the universe is still growing and expanding, God has to be at least as big as the universe, right? At least. And so that kind of, you know, then, all, you know, obviously you can see how that played nicely into adopting something yeah. like process thought or at least becoming like deeply engaged in it. Um, sure. And then it became exciting again. Right. Um, and and that's one thing I think process thought offers that, um, you know, I hopefully one day I would love to, you know, keep having this kind of conversation. And um, my aim within the field would be like, to try to help make these kind of things more readily accessible um, and show how exciting it is because it does, it presents this, this better image of the divine. Um, and it, it also leads you to a place where like, okay, so if it isn't just about people, well, that's really exciting because it's not, it, that doesn't mean people suck, but rather it's like people are a part of this beautiful, creative uh, ongoing process, this, you know, kind of, um, yeah organism you know so to speak so anyway that's that's meaningful to me um and and yeah. also to it it opens up the uh like a willingness to accept something like extraterrestrial life because it's like yeah of course that would be a thing as you were just saying um especially when <laughs> yeah, you I mean, you know fancy things like creativity and you know um this kind of stuff so I think a lot of the, yeah, I think that's well put, you know, and, and a lot of this conversation banks on a shift of our understanding of, of what creation to use the traditional term is, you know, for many years, at least in my upbringing, creation was sort of over and done with, right? It was an event of the past. It was something behind me and not ahead of me, not ongoing, not present. Right. But even throughout Christian history, this notion of Crossio continua, right? Continuous creation uh, has been central. And if we really take that seriously, it belongs to the divine nature to create. God has always been creating, right? It belongs to the verb-like nature of the divine, if you want, to, to be a creator. So if you think about a universe as our, uh, of ours that is unfolding in a processual and deeply evolutionary way, one can see, if you want, the reality of God is continuously creating in that um, and, and see the birth of life and mind and value elsewhere as an expression of that. You know, it, there's no reason to restrict divine activity to one terrestrial setting. Now, where it gets interesting is that uh, with certain doctrinal qualms, right? So questions of salvation, questions of, you know, a particular uh, 
qualms. It's like, what if another planet didn't, quote unquote, fall into sin, as some have wanted to put it? Did Jesus not need to go there? Or is there a planet hopping Jesus, right? So the Vatican gets questions like this, right? <laughs> so um, that's where it gets interesting. And, and thinkers have had different perspectives, whether multi, multiple incarnations uh, versus just one or different renderings of, of sin and redemption. I think the general consensus, though, is that if there are other beings, that God will find a way to make the divine self known to them in ways that are appropriate to them. And that God is always seeking this redemptive uh, exposure of the divine self to these to these creatures so it's a nice expanse to the christian tradition which historically has had a tendency to focus uh on one planet right be terra centric in that way and on human beings as the cream of the crop well yes on this planet but i think we have to come into come to terms with the likelihood that there could be extraterrestrial intelligences that are vastly more advanced than us and that perhaps relate to God or what they understand to be God in ways that we would have not even fathomed yet. You know, so again, we're, we're here in the dimension of speculative adventure, but we have to, as a, as theologians, as interested people of faith, begin to really ask these questions. And that's what's happening in this literature. So in part, my, my book is trying to contribute that direction. And I'm, I'm not done yet. I'm going to be working in this, this field more. So Nice. Well, yeah, it, it's almost too like it's a, uh it's an expansion of like a deep religious pluralism a la someone like Cobb or uh, David Ray Griffin, because that, that, that same kind of like their principles that, you know, apply with like humans and like different religious traditions, you know, on this planet, um, you can kind of blow that up and make it cosmic, so to speak. And it, it it seems like it maps, right? Because, yeah, if you, well, I don't want to get too deep into the different, like, you know, their understanding of like different ultimates and stuff, but essentially yeah. if it works for the different religions, then like, yeah, cool. Like we can then take that and make it cosmic um, and say like, <laughs> oh, cool. It can then too work for, you know, of course, God or the divine, whatever is going to um, meet whatever kind of um, extraterrestrial life or superior minds, whatever, where they're at and you know love them and you know seek you know goodness and beauty and truth and this kind of stuff in their experience as well yeah beautiful and you know it's like if god is the god of creation right this has generally been a claim that's that's affirmed you know certainly throughout the christian tradition then the question is about the scope of that creation um you know and and should there be a plurality of worlds it's like at least from our perspective on this planet, God is still in relation to those to those worlds in a deep sense. And this cosmic dimension you're pointing to, I think, is important. And it's important to say too that this is not just a modern sort of focus of cosmology of, of, of theology, right? Even though it is, but that that cosmic dimension has always been a part of the Christian tradition, and not just the Christian Christian tradition, but the whole the whole vision, at least, of the cosmos as the New Testament understood it at the time was that Christ will be all in all, right? This cosmic interfusion of God and the world, right? And this movement of them of them together. So we can still say that today, our cosmos is much larger, but, but the cosmic dimension of Christian faith, uh, the logos, right? As this cosmic principle in and through which all things are made and the Sophia, the wisdom of God in and through which all things are drawn together and unified and redeemed, 
I mean, those things still apply now. So it's not as if the Christian tradition doesn't harbor really great resources for us in this discussion. It does. And if you look at a lot of the literature, um, they're drawing precisely on these ancient cosmic dimensions to restate anew some of these central fictions. You know, that's kind of fun to see. Because the Christian conversation is a current that's flowing. It's not, it's not itself, like any more than creation, a one and done event of the past. It's happening and we're we're contributing to it, uh, even in this moment. <laughs> you know? So I just think that's important to emphasize because um that cosmic dimension allows us a lot of latitude to think creatively, theologically, and with respect to this question. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And another aspect, you know, then that I kind of want to throw in there in regard to um, the divine would be this kind of um, more like naturalistic understanding of yeah. the divine, right? Because I know that's something that was one of Dick's points. He had this kind of like very like, you know, naturalistic kind of understanding. And within the process thinking, you have this more like naturalistic understanding of the divine or um i guess what is griffin's is like naturalistic dipolar theism kind of thing um right <laughs> which is is a lot of fun and that's like a whole other conversation but i'm interested sure. um how like how do you see this kind of natural more naturalistic understanding of the divine um mm -hmm. playing into this conversation in a way that is is helpful or to use language from earlier kind of deepens uh dick's um, own kind of principle. Yeah, great. Well, the naturalism of which Deke's, Dick speaks, right, his naturalistic cosmo theology is not that of, of Whitehead, right? I think that's an important claim to make because what Dick takes naturalism to mean is that God really has been fully uh, negated or uh, omitted, right? So when Dick, what Dick ultimately offers uh, as a theology Right? And he even specu speculates, like, maybe I shouldn't even use that term, right? He just sort of has a reduced rendering of the meaning of theology to simply what gives life meaning, right? So it's sort of a diluted uh, understanding of that term. But what he is using the language of theology for, at least hypothetically, potentially, speculatively, is the notion that there could be these highly advanced superintelligences, um, many of which would have the natural attributes in some sense that we have traditionally assigned to god so they might be omnipotent omnipotent or omniscient or uh, or what have you omnipresent in some way but the naturalistic claim for him is that they are only a product themselves of cosmological evolution they're an achievement of the evolutionary process themselves um and not the ground of that process right and that distinction is quite important so i want to critique Dick and saying, well, you leave a lot of, with that proposal, you leave a lot of philosophical questions outstanding that need to be addressed. Questions that in principle, uh, the affirmation of God would, would satisfy. So God has not, not been just a contingent fact, right? So for Steve, these superintelligence come into being at one point, right? There's a time when they were not to, to hark back to, to Arius. But in principle, it belongs to the tradition, philosophical tradition, to say that there's a necessary element of God. But God is eternal in some sense. Something of the nature of God is what preconditions the very fact and unfolding of the cosmic process. So I think Whitehead offers that, right? God is infinite and eternal, but God is also naturally related in the most in the most coherent and unified sense, arguably. It doesn't mean that God doesn't exist, 
It means that the ways in which God operates with the world are always part parcel of the world's natural processes themselves, right? And Griffin puts it in that way. So we're not speaking about supernatural interruptions from the outside, because in principle, there's nothing outside God. Um, and I think you can make that claim coherently. So Steve usually, you know, uses the language of naturalism as a as a defense against supernaturalism, which he doesn't like. But what he loses in the process is really the reality of God. And I'm, I'm saying he doesn't need to do that. With the resources Whitehead offers, you can you can keep God a naturalistic God without um, having to sort of dilute the meaning so much uh, that it sort of loses loses significance. Nor am I saying that you can't have highly evolved natural superintelligences. I think likely these these could be realities, but they're quite different from God. They came into being. They're not the ground of the possible. They're actualization of the possible, right? And one interesting last point. Steve um, speculates that it could even be the case that a highly evolved natural superintelligence has fine-tuned our universe to produce life, right? You've heard a lot of, perhaps, maybe your listeners, this discussion of fine-tuning, which is a reality in some sense, that we have these cosmological constants that have to be a certain way for our universe to give birth to carbon-based life as we know it. So he speculates, well, maybe highly evolved intelligence could do this. Now, my problem with that is that there seems to be, uh, call it a contradiction or paradox of some kind, because how can you tune something that itself is responsible for your own existence, right? This is a this is a problem. So it, it seems to push back to a transcendent element in this superintelligence. It needs to be uh, not simply a contingent product of this tuning, but the ground of that tuning and the reason for that tuning. So I think Whitehead's yeah offering is is this dipolar dimension that you mentioned. God is not only infinite and necessary in the primordial nature, the ground of the possible, the ground of value, and of any achieved value in the universe. God is also consequent, right? This deeply related. God is also a product, in some sense, of the evolution of the universe in every single moment. So I just think, um, while I like Steve's proposal, it has some metaphysical holes that I think Whitehead's God can can satisfy, uh, at least in principle. Um, so, but of course. He's writing a response to me now, you know, we're going to be engaging further, so I'm interested to see what he thinks. But again, he's not a philosopher, he's a historian, um, and, and that's important. Um, so anyway, I'll, I'll let you pick up on that, but but yeah, th there's different elements there, but I know it gets complicated. Yeah, I mean, and it's still, so, like, I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I fully understand. <laughs> um, yeah, sure. But I, I do know that for me like recently and by recently i mean within the past like five or six months i read um david ray griffin's book uh re-enchantment without supernaturalism and nice. that was kind of uh i don't know that was an experience where a lot of this kind of process stuff started to make a lot more sense and kind of click for me yeah. And it actually gave me like very helpful language and this very like compelling image of the divine. Like I I love that the, the kind of naturalistic, you know, dipolar thing, um, you know, understanding yeah. that he he offers. Um, and then I was like, oh, cool. So now I'm understanding some of the kind of like influences on someone like Tom Ward, who is my yeah. introduction into this kind of world of thinking. So it's kind of cool. Um, for sure. And, and also, also to the, um, I don't know. Well, 
See, this is the problem with ADHD because my brain wants to go in like 90 different directions. <laughs> <laughs> and so trying to stay on topic is difficult. Um, all right. So, yeah, well, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to pick up on something you said, though, about Griffin. Yeah, yeah, I would highly, it's not the easiest text, but I would highly recommend that text to a lot of people. Reenchantment without supernaturals. And the subtitle is A, a Process Philosophy of Religion. Um, and it's a great book. And yeah, Tom, Tom was certainly influenced by Griffin, uh, knew him well. And um, in that book, just along the lines of how we're speaking, I mean, he's making these important distinctions with respect to this conversation about naturalism. So if you do look at a lot of the theological or philosophical literature, naturalism is a is the opposite of supernaturalism, right? So it, it's usually thought to be atheistic in nature. If you're a naturalist, uh, theologically, philosophically, right? You don't actually believe uh, in the reality of God. But that's a real limitation on that term. So I think a lot of the benefit of, of Griffin's book is to say that atheism will always presuppose naturalism, but naturalism does not presuppose atheism, right? There can be a naturalistic understanding of the God-world relationship that is not supernatural in nature, right? It's not based on exterior relationships or exterior interventions. And that doesn't mean you have to get rid of the miraculous per se, right? So again, it's it's a matter of how we're using these terms. It's a matter of how we imagine God relating to this to this world, you know. So anyway, that, that book is highly recommended. It's a great one. I hope to return to it again myself. Read it a couple times, uh, but love it. Yeah. Nice. All right. I want to ask a question that's this is definitely a Josh question. So I one cool. thing I've been very interested in recently and like reading a lot about is uh philosophy of mind stuff right mm -hmm. and so i am enjoying this kind of like um goodness now words are going to escape me um pan experientialism right yeah and so i'm curious as to how do you see something like pan experientialism playing into this conversation of exo life or of yeah of extraterrestrial life great great question yeah so jed just a little bit about pan experientialism speaking of griffin right <laughs> this is a term that uh that, that he coined um and pan experientialism or otherwise known as pan psychism right that's also the term that's being used um is all the rage right now in the philosophy of mind um that wasn't always the case so process thinkers were writing on levels of you know, pan experientialism for many many years so it's a, it's now coming into a very energetic conversation we're like hey we've you know we've been here for a while but that's the claim that experience goes all the way down in nature it's actually the claim that experience is really irreducible um that if you imagine working back down to the most fundamental level of reality uh whitehead griffin others conceive it as an event that that occurs like a slice of space and time that happens and they imagine that event to have an interiority to it. It's not dead, vacuous matter. It's an event that has a slice of experience, right? So experience goes all the way down in nature. That's a part of their ontology, right? Again, ontology is what exists fundamentally, what is. So this occasion of experience, as Whitehead calls it, belongs to nature fundamentally. It's that out of which nature is constructed in a deep way. Um, so the benefit of doing that is for one, it's it's deeply resonant with our own experience since we are experiential beings. And we have to face the question as to how it is if the universe is completely dead and lifeless, 
at base level how the hell it gave rise to life and mind in us. Well, that's an ongoing conversation. People try to work miracles of philosophy to show you how it is that a dead universe can give you give birth to life. Process folks are more skeptical, right? We want to say that that what we are, what is expressed in our experience, can be strategically read back over nature to its fundamental level. So when we say that an event is experiencing, we're not saying it's a human experience. We're saying it's an interior dimension of mind, really. The mind belongs to nature as, a, as an ontological primitive. So if mind is in the ontology, it's not a huge step to see how that would, would play into thinking about advanced extraterrestrial life or even just extraterrestrial life that's reached our level. It will be mental of some kind. But assuming there are creatures that have reached at least our stage or more, they're going to have a mental component. Um, so I think pan-experientialism has yet to really be applied in and explored with respect to extraterrestrial life question, but it definitely has implications. It, mean, it means that mind is inherent in nature. And if mind is inherent in nature, mind is beyond Earth. The question is, at what level of complexity? Uh, you know, so does, does that help? I mean, it's, we face that question of how we properly read the fact that we're a part of nature. If we truly are, at least Whitehead says, we're in nature, then mental functionings belong to nature at an experiential level. Yeah. And, and if, yeah, exactly. So then if that kind of, you know, mind or mental aspect is fundamental to nature, then like, of course, you're going to find that elsewhere, right? Like it, it would be silly yeah. to, to perhaps think or assume that the only place that, um, you know, this interior, interior aspect became uh, complex enough to arise to some kind of consciousness like we experience would be only here on earth that would yeah. be kind of silly so it, you know it would make sense it would give explanatory power to you know yeah. life elsewhere. it's a it's it's a sort of through line back all the way into the depths of nature right that those mm -hmm. depths are consistent with what they've given rise to um experiential beings conscious beings right but we're not saying a lot of the conversation of philosophy mind surrounding panpsychism like the critics will say oh they just think everything's conscious right that's sort of a way of just dismissing the conversation we're not saying that um, consciousness doesn't go all the way down. It's not as if electrons are considering their you know, day and what they're up to in morning coffee and at conscious level, yeah, twiddling their thumbs. But nevertheless, that experience is this fundamental category out of which at high evolutionary levels, consciousness is made um, cogent, right? It may be hard to imagine even that, but it's very hard to understand how an utterly mindless universe Give, gives rise to mind out of pulpy dead matter that is fully insentient. That's a heroic, heroic endeavor. Which is why then, you know, you have our dualist friends pop up on the scene and they say, well, here's maybe one way you could do it, but then they still have their issues yeah. as well. And then philosophers argue with each other, uh, which is fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. But also just like, I think the same can be said of life. Yeah, life okay. Is a, it, is a very difficult concept to <laughs> define. I don't know if I offer a definition here, but but it seems that experience and life in some sense belong together. You know, so Whitehead and process thinkers generally, a lot of science, the development of science generally has, there is no absolute gap between living and non-living. Um, and when I say non-living, I'm not meaning dead. I'm not meaning lifeless, right? We might say that Prior to life as we know it, there's 
there's dimensions of pre-life, uh, but pre-life is not death, right? So what Whitehead offers us, I think, in, in its relevance for this extraterrestrial life conversation, is it offers a living ontology. The base of reality, its functioning, its creativity is living and not dead. And it's that context in which you have to make sense of the higher rise of life, right? That evolution, there's nothing other to the evolutionary process than the rising achievement of life and mind and value. If that's the case, that helps reason why we're here metaphysically, and it would help support our imaginative affirmation of similar kinds of life uh, elsewhere. It wouldn't be like us physically or have our chemistry per se, but it would share in this mental, this living, this valuative kind of dimension, you know. And there's a sense of belonging in that as well, you know. Anywho, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, it's it's good. It's helpful. It's and I think that you know we've pulled. So my first question was kind of pulling from some of these 15 or so, um, or I think you call them thematic affirmations <laughs> within yeah, process right. thought uh, towards this mm -hmm. conversation. And so I think um, part of at least what I heard you talking about, there's one that you said, like the differences between life and non-life are matters of degree, organization, and complexification rather than kind. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that, I don't know, that was interesting. That was interesting for me. And, and, um, you know, I had to stop and think about it. And just as you were speaking, uh, just now, I, I don't know, I was getting excited because I was like, oh, okay, this is pretty <laughs> cool. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. Um, I find it helpful I, I, and yeah, go, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say to add to that a little bit, um, for you or for for your listeners too, there's a Hans Jonas was a Jewish philosophical theologian, 20th century, influenced by Whitehead and many others. Brilliant, brilliant. He wrote a wonderful book called The Phenomenon of Life. Right. I, I sort of think he used that title playing off of Tehard's book, right? The Phenomenon of Man. But one of the points he makes immediately is that the modern world is is in a curious situation. It's basically in the inverse situation that the that the ancient world was in. And it's with respect to life and death. He says the ancient world took it for granted that everything was living, right? This sort of pan uh, vitalist or pan biotic, what do you call it? Animistic, if you want, everything was living. Um, and therefore, death was the problem. It's like, well, everything's alive. So why do things why do things die? How do we deal with death, right, in some sense? And then he makes this interesting shift in the modern period, the modern development of philosophy, opting for a metaphysics of death, right? Everything, the, the most fundamental state of the universe is basically dead, and now life is a problem, right? How do we make life, make sense of life out of a dead ontology? And so Jonas is going to argue that, well, you can't in some sense, right? Um, that this reductive materialistic universe where what is fundamental is insentient, immobile, valueless, purposeless, ultimately blind, is a dead ontology. Those are all things that we would assign to a corpse, right? And and as to how it is that, uh, you know, a, a corpse is revived or resurrected into what we see now, it's like that it is a hero, heroic a, attempt of modern philosophy. So process thinkers affirm a living universe, a living ontology. And you know, I just love how Jonas makes that distinction between an ontology of death and an ontology of life. I think that's sort of helpful in this conversation. 
Yeah. I, oh, absolutely. And then I think too, even as a nod towards, I mean, I, I know this isn't necessarily what, you know, I don't want to appropriate uh, Hans's work, but within someone who comes from a Christian tradition that like the whole point was life, right. You know, um, yeah. this kind of ontology of life seems like it fits better. Like, especially yeah. too, if you want to go back to like the whole like garden of Eden thing, like regardless of how you read that, the the understanding of like things being you know filled with the ruach the you know the divine spirit whatever yeah. it can make sense it's not it sounds like more like an ontology of life rather than of death oh. um it, oh, and that's, that's i don't know it's interesting well yeah i mean it really is and yeah i mean you're making me think of elements of scripture that talk about the living god right and there's a certain logic in that, that life gives birth to life. Death does not give, give birth to life, right? So that whatever the foundations of this universe are, in some sense, they have to be consistent with what they've produced. And at least Christians, uh, not just Christians, obviously, but my tradition, but to see God as, as life with a capital L is a context in which all finite lowercase l life is included, or at least assumed. So. Yeah, I just think it's an important important distinction. It's not so obvious to say what is absolutely living and not living. And we're not just talking about rocks. Like a rock obviously doesn't have a life that we would recognize, right? Its organization is not of the kind to create a unified experience, et cetera. So that's not what I'm saying. A rock isn't living per se. But if you go into that rock at the fine, at, at a microscopic level, you're going to find that its constituents are active, at least for Whitehead, they're experiential. They're repetitive, right? And even creative at, at certain levels. So it's a complete sort of inversion of, of this reductive worldview that says that we we emerge out of death and not out of life. And that has, for me, many theological implications. Yeah, big big time. And two, like once you get down to that that level, you know, talking about um, you know, from Whitehead's perspective being experiential, but also I think too, what's exciting for me is the relational aspect. Once you get down to like these really tiny, you know, whatever, where you have some atomic <laughs> particles and then recognize that things are essentially just like mostly empty space of things existing in relationship. Uh, so like that relational aspect, um, I don't know, plays nicely for me, especially as, mm -hmm. you know, somebody that lives in, you know, my context is one of like hyper individualism. And I know it's this is something that all human beings search for but is is a sense of belonging right but that's like i know for me personally you know if i go like the shit that i tell my therapist on you a sense of belonging is something that like deeply matters to me that that i i, I look for and so yeah. the kind of relational aspect um as kind of inherent in that is another reason i think process is so uh alluring to me so to speak is because there is that sense of deep relation, you know, deep relationality at the core of all things. Um, oh, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're you're right on. And like, there may be a lot of meanings to the language of belonging, but but connection or fitting, right? How you fit into the larger scope is, I think, behind a lot of that. So I like to sometimes talk about belonging as that space, that existential space where your being and your longing, right, find connection. Right, your existence and and you're pondering about where your existence fit, where they connect. And I think process thinking based in this fundamental interconnection and relationality 
uh, between you and the universe, and between between the universe and God, you and God by that fact, is uh, is important. Again, why would the universe give rise to something that uh, was contradictory in some way to its to its nature? It's like we don't just happen to exist. That's, it's just not a good argument at, at a lot of just philosophical levels. And that's a lot of the literature, like scientific. Again, I point, I sort of pick on Dyson just because I think he needs more philosophy classes. Good scientist. Very entertaining. <laughs> well, Sagan, I thought was a little bit better, but um, the universe doesn't just give rise to disjointed, independent pellets. You know, there's some there's a substratum of relationality that grounds everything that is. Uh, Whitehead call it the extensive continuum, right? This this ultimate final background of relationality in some way. Even God is tangled in it. He called it the foster mother of all becoming. <laughs> you know sort of beautiful language but yeah i totally agree the task of of one uh, of belonging of seeking to belong is seeing how you ultimately relate and how um how the world is not what it is without you right ubuntu as the african sages would call it right right i am what i am because of what we all are that's a statement of relationality i think process thinkers affirm that just all the way down right all the way down nature yeah yeah anyway yeah no, absolutely. And then that kind of thinking too, you know, gives rise to this like a very deep and genuine uh ability to like talk about the inherent value um of all, you know, some people would say of all living things, but I would say of like ev- like the inherent value of creation, uh, yeah. which then would extend to our extraterrestrial brothers and sisters <laughs> or, you know, yeah. extraterrestrial friend i don't know whatever language they would prefer <laughs> to be called yeah. um and you know which i think is you know one um you, you talk about you know that to an extent in the book um but yeah. I, I mean even in a sense to you know you talk about the uh, man and this is opening another can of worms but different things like um morality and beauty and if those are like in some sense like ultimate or something like that then yeah, they would also be universal in the sense that they'd apply to the extraterrestrial uh, life as well. Um, yeah, so yeah great. It all, it's all connected for me. Like this is my brain just putting things together. Yeah. No, but, <laughs> it, but it's, I think it's working right. It's, yeah, let, let's comment on the value thing for a minute. Um, where there is life and experience, there is also value, right? Even if somebody believes the universe is purposeless they assign and assume deep value in the context of life and experience um now again process thinkers at the at the very base of reality locate life and experience and they also locate value even whitehead has a, a match of statements where he says that an event the very most fundamental event say of the universe the base of reality is a value experience it's a, it's a value process it's something for itself it has intrinsic value but he'll make a larger claim He'll, he'll say that existence itself is the upholding of value intensity, right? So it's not only the case that evolution is the rise, arguably the progressive rise of uh, life and mind, but also value, right? So that the evolutionary process has given rise to higher dimensions of value too. And I think to deny that just really kind of strains credulity. It's not, there's nothing deterministic, right? There's been all sorts of wrong turns and pitfalls, right? There's the creative chaotic element of the universe belongs in some way. But evolution has, has shown us a rise in value, a rise in the capacity of us to experience intrinsic worth. And so you're sort of asking about the nature of value. So Whitehead affirms 
that there's antecedent standards of value that are in the nature of things, right? That you have to start from that in a deep way. And Hartshorn even says, even the laws of nature, the laws of that show harmony and intensity, those are, those are uh, aesthetic notions, right? He says, aesthetic notions and values are deeper even than the laws of nature. So just to contextualize that a little bit, Whitehead says that aesthetic value, aesthetic order is the deepest kind of, of order there is in the universe. Um, like, for example, we don't happen to have a world that just randomly expresses an order. He says we have an, a world because there is a more fundamental order. And he points to that order as, as aesthetic, right? So you ask the moral question too, just as experience blooms into consciousness at high, high evolutionary levels, so too does aesthetic value that belongs to nature at the level of ontology, so too does aesthetic value bloom into moral value and moral order. So Whitehead will make the claim, for example, that the moral order is merely certain aspects of, of the aesthetic order. It's about beauty. It's about harmony, right? We think of how, how we tune the instrument to something harmonious and beautiful, and we recognize its beauty, at least most people do, right? We're sort of skeptical of those who, who don't recognize the musical beauty. But human life can be tuned in that way too, right? At, at the level of high achievements of ethics and morality, we see a certain beauty come out in human life. We see it in Christ, we see it in Gandhi, MLK, others, you know? So like, again, we're drawing back this continuum from our high level expression of what this universe is about, but even at the fundamental level, value is not absent. Truth, beauty, and goodness, as Whitehead says, are at the base of existence. And God's role, at least as this divine poet, he says, is, is one of leading the universe by his vision of truth, beauty, and goodness. And there's a certain coherence to that. The universe has given rise to that. Um, anyway, so I think the axiological or the value dimension is so fundamental in my thinking, back to the other book that we were discussing, Mind, Value, Cosmos. But also it's essential here. So whatever beings we encounter, out there potentially going to have a sense for value because value belongs to mind it belongs to life and um they in themselves are going to be an expression of value and when you make the connection that the universe has produced value and that you sell yourself are a valuing being an actualization of value this gets us back to that sense of belonging again the universe produces valuable things and you are one of them again existential belonging yeah anyway. that's no, it's good. I so building on that, um, I was ha having a conversation with a buddy of mine um prior to this. I met up with him after I got off work and was kind of explaining, you know, the conversation we were gonna have. And he he's not a philosopher, he's not a theologian, he doesn't, you know, um think about this stuff frequently, but he was like kind of you know, making fun of me a little bit. It was like, oh, so you're going to be asking if aliens are dumb enough to also believe in God. And it's not just like a stupid <laughs> invention of the human mind, da 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 kind of thing. And so I'm, yeah. I'm curious because if we're talking about something like value, you know, being um, kind of inherent uh, or universal, um, what, <laughs> what would you say to my, my buddy who might be like, oh, so, you know, the idea of, of God or the divine is just, you know, some kind of human nonsense. So obviously aliens aren't going to believe in that because they're not people. I feel like <laughs> that ties into the value thing, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. I mean, it just, I think it's the mistaken comment that, or, or assumption that God talk or God language is just to fill some metaphysical loneliness that we feel, right? We're just projecting, right? Feuerbach, uh, Ludwig Feuerbach famously thought this, right? That 
that we're really creating God in our image. Um, and we do that, you know, that theology should try to avoid that. But again, we're part of this universe. Um, and therefore, we have to leverage creatively our experience, even theologically. I'm not saying God's a human being. Um, but God might be the primordial expression of life, mind, and value, right? That might be a coherent reason. But the idea of God doesn't just simply come around because people are bored and feeling lonely. Like, they just make it up. Right? That's, a, that's a lazy way of, that's a way of not reading the tradition. Okay, the, the, the hypothesis, if you want, the reality of God is one that aims to solve some of the ultimate metaphysical questions, ultimate philosophical problems that we face in light of the fact of experience too, right? That all throughout history, people have had experiential dimensions to them. They might not label it God. They might label it something else, fair enough, right? The term has a lot of baggage, but there's experiential dimensions that we should not ultimately just dismiss. Um, I'm not saying you just believe anything any religious person tells you about their experience. You have to be careful with that. But the idea is not a, a, some idea of just, you know, well, let's just throw it out there because we're lonely. It's like we're asking about the preconditions of what ultimately allowed the universe to be. Um, and value is an important dimension of that. Okay, there are atheist philosophers, Thomas Nagel, um, Derek Parfit, for example, who insist upon the objectivity of value in the universe. Now, they don't want to locate it. They don't want to give it a divine locus. But yeah, they, I was going to say, where, a, does, where does it exist for yeah. them? <laughs> well, I mean, and that's a good question. So it's like there's a metaphysical hole in their in their philosophy, as far as I'm concerned, or, or as Griffin puts it in, in Reenchantment Without Supernaturalism, a God-shaped metaphysical hole. So it, it's like there's some elements of our experience that are ineradicable. I think value is one of those experiences. And if there are real standards of value, if there are possibilities of achievable value, that clearly transcend us, where do we locate them? Um, it makes sense to locate value in mind together. It makes sense to locate possibility in mind together. The theological tradition is not absurd in pushing to the conclusion that there's something ultimately mind-like in nature, and that it's that thing that we're approximating and using the language of, of God, right? Anyway, I hope that helps your friend, but <laughs> maybe we'll bring him on one day no. yeah that no well, i don't i doubt he uh i don't know he's a fun person well but i don't know if podcasting is his vibe but yeah i it, it's it's deeply helpful i think so um and yeah anyway um i i yeah i like the i like the connection there and that i mean that's something we talked about the first time that you were on is this understanding of if we believe in something like beauty or value or whatever um, or even I think the way we talked about it perhaps was uh, possibilities. If possibilities yeah. are real, they have to exist somewhere, right? So like where where is it that possibilities like exist, so to speak? Um, in the same yeah. sense, I guess you could value in these kind of things uh, similar. So yeah, no, definitely. I think that's that's a part of the tradition and some will reject that, but there's a certain coherence to that claim, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that that possibilities and minds belong together right? the only access you and i have to possibilities is through our mental functioning it's it's that context which allows us to entertain future contingents or possibilities by virtue of their value that's what mind does um and i think we have to insist that there is a transcendent domain of possibility that the universe is actualizing at every moment but that is not ultimately dependent on us and either you integrate it into something or you just leave let it let it stand there 
as a brute fact. Um, but it's not obvious how possibilities can exist on their own or be relevant. Some limitation on the possible has happened to have a universe, right? We're back to this sort of fine tuning discussion. We limit the possible in our own experience so that we can achieve value in our, in our temporal lives. The universe seems to be limited in terms of the possible so something of value can emerge like you and me and others. It may not be the case, to, back to your friend, that aliens believe in God, right? Quote, unquote. Um, they might have a different rendering of understanding these domains of mentality and value, you know? But if they're quite curious as to the foundations of existence, I, I trust that they would push towards something that we might be able to relate on, right? Something of deep connection, right? So I think religion from a high perspective is this desire to be in ultimate harmony with the nature of things you know the question is about what the nature of things are um so i think religion can apply at a broad level to these other these other planets potentially there's cultural questions that complicate that but uh you know we're asking the ultimate questions here we're not just you know doing this for for no reason you know anyway yeah no absolutely absolutely and i think um I don't know. I think that it would be fun too. like, say, I don't know, somehow, you know, contact was made with some, you know, extraterrestrial life. I think it'd be deeply interesting to explore whatever kind of, I don't know, if we're going to use the word religion, like religion or religious expression, spirituality um, that is common amongst, you know, whatever kind of extraterrestrial life they are um yeah because yeah i i mean and maybe it is just i mean i think you're making the point that it's not but maybe it's just you know me being kind of anthropocentric assuming my own conscious experience and that of humanity um and then projecting it onto you know aliens or something like that but uh i don't know i think it's a little bit deeper yeah. than that so definitely well and that's why i'm trying to push that metaphysical level speculatively of course yeah to say that there are commonalities in the ontology mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. out of which the universe has given birth there's the grounds for commonality to even speak of contact with extraterrestrials right? assuming that it's possible in some way <laughs> that's a larger discussion contact assumes something of commonality between us otherwise there can't be any meaningful sort of contact and i think this value dimension we're talking about is the most interesting uh, place of contact for example uh, musical value right imagine music that you have never heard before right it's totally baffling to you Dimensions of harmony and intensity by virtue of sound that other extraterrestrial civilizations have given birth to, right? We could connect with them on music. Like maybe we should just like send some Metallica like over to that star and just, you know, see what, can they recognize it? You know, music assumes a certain pattern of harmony that's recognizable by intelligence, you know? Or what if we sent, um, what if we were able to communic communicate ethical value somehow to another planet, right? Maybe Jesus washing somebody's feet, right? <laughs> Whether they could make that out. We're communicating on this sort of value dimension. And even in like the movie contact, when there is that contact, it's it's via mathematical pattern. And there's a harmony in that pattern. There's a beauty in that pattern. So all this language of contacts assumes that there's that there's commonalities among us that would make that contact coherent, you know. We're not gonna speak their language, obviously. There's deeper dimensions, what like you're pointing to that I think would be the basis for for contact. Sweet. Well, I'll, all right. I'll ask you one more question to kind of wrap things up. And it's sure. Uh, I think it would just be fun. 
So with all of this said, you know, you do a lot of speculating on the possibility of extraterrestrial life and what that could mean and this kind of thing. Do you, what is your own like personal take on like extraterrestrial life? Does it exist? And have we made contact? Like, is that little alien dude from the Mexican government? <laughs> is that legit? <laughs> <laughs> That's, That's a great question to, to end on. Yeah, it's like a nice yeah. fun one. <laughs> so so it's a two-part question, right? The first yeah. the first part is do they exist? Um I in my heart of hearts uh do believe that the universe is populated with utter magnitudes of life. I do not think we're just some uh sideline accidental expression. I think our existence and all that it presupposes is also expressed elsewhere. So I believe in a biological universe, one where life and mind and value is utterly replete in common. Um, have we made contact with that life? That, now that's a harder question. In principle, we can. Um, people have all sorts of anomalous kind of experiences. Abduction phenomena is quite interesting. In fact, John Cobb for a while was in conversation with the Harvard psychiatrist John Mack. John Mack wrote a number of books on abduction phenomena, interviewing thousands of people. His conclusions were, um, he sort of spiritualized it, but he believed them. They're not crazy. You know, but uh, so I'm, I remain very skeptical about a lot of the current claims. This little, you know, Halloween-esque figure coming out in the Mexican government, I, I remain very skeptical of that. So I think we have to remain skeptical, but it's not impossible that that we've made contact. It's not impossible that they're here. I just think we have to be careful about that. We have to demand empirical evidence. We have to demand reliable evidence. Um, I think that's all that, I mean, I, I have to remain in a posture of openness. But as for life spreading throughout the universe, yeah, I think it's I think it's there. And I argue it on philosophical and theological grounds. So, but yeah. no abduction experiences yet for me, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me neither. And I'm not saying I'm like, this is not me wishing for one fellow extraterrestrial peoples. <laughs> Yeah, uh, careful what you wish for. Right. I'd have to rewrite right. my book. <laughs> right. I have to message you and be like, Andrew, you're not going to believe what happened yeah. to me last night. <laughs> yeah, by the way, your uh, book is yeah, way right. off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I think I'm with you. I think I very much um, believe that there is there there is other life um, for very similar reasons that uh, you're saying. And then I... I don't know that, you know, jury is out, so to speak, on if we've made contact, if contact is even possible kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not an expert in this field. I don't think about it often, but um, sure. I don't know. I like the posture of openness. And I think uh, that's another maybe tenant, so to speak, that I've found within a lot of process thinking and process philosophers is kind of this spirit of openness, uh, which I appreciate. And so I you know, try to maintain that, that for myself. <laughs> I think ending with the posture of openness is a, a beautiful conclusion to a, a rich conversation with you. Yeah, so thank good you. deal. Gosh. Yeah, well, thank you, Andrew. I, I appreciate it. Um, this was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed uh, your book. Uh, listeners, I'll be sure to link it in the show notes for you if you guys want to dive deeper. And uh, as I think 
I was telling you prior to this conversation, if you want to like actually be a cool nerd and like not get the Josh Patterson filtered version of it, read the book. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a good deal. But yeah, Andrew, thank you so much um, for hanging out and hopefully our paths will uh, cross in the future. I uh, trust there will, brother. Thank you. Sounds good. All right, man. Peace. Peace.